chapter 8 on page 755 in the Blue Bible, 755. Hosea uh, chapter 8, let's hear God's word. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a, a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing corn has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe before, sorry, because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour their strongholds. <coughs> well, I think we should pray, shall we? Let's pray together and ask for help. Father God, thank you for uh, Hosea. Lord, thank you for this strange but marvelous book. And as we continue in our study of tonight, we, we pray, Lord, that you will be merciful to us. You will be gracious to us, Lord, that we will not be weighed down by these messages of, often messages of impending doom, but you will help us to learn, Lord. Help us to see ourselves, if somewhat, in what we see tonight. God, grant us much grace, we pray. We ask for this, Lord, that you might continue your work of sanctification in us. That as we journey through this life of faith, Lord, that we would move closer and closer towards that last day when we are presented, as it were, spotless 
with joy. So, Lord, may tonight's ministry be to that end, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this next chapter of Hosea's message shows us five examples where God's covenant people were deluded in their thinking, where they held to a particular belief only to then have that delusion dismantled by what God says to them through his prophet Hosea. And all of it is serious business. None of these are minor areas of wrong thinking, but all five of them are serious areas of concern. For right from the very first verse, there is the sound of a trumpet. There is the warning of looming judgment. To be deluded is a serious matter. Let me give you an example of that. Apparently, during the 1930s, British life was going along quite effortlessly. After the depression of earlier years, the economy was beginning to settle again, and people were generally beginning to experience an increasingly comfortable lifestyle after the previous years of depression. There were a few politicians who were almost prophetic in their repeated warnings about the growth of Nazi power. But people didn't want to hear about post-World War I German politics. They didn't care about Mr. Hitler and the rise of National Socialism or the quiet growth in Germany's manufacture of tanks and aircraft and ships and so on and so forth. Instead, they placed their faith in Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister who had visited the German Chancellor on a number of occasions, and then who had famously returned from a meeting on the uh, 30th of September 1938 and stepped off his aircraft holding that piece of white paper in his hand that fluttered in the wind. That piece of paper had the signature of Adolf Hitler on it promising not to invade Europe. Chamberlain was confident that Hitler's signature guaranteed peace in our time, and so the people of Britain rejoiced, but the people of Poland weren't so deluded. The political prophets at the time, such as Churchill, continued to warn Parliament and the British people, but they felt too safe to be concerned. Hitler had promised not to invade. So why worry about such a thing as that? Why worry about the odd German plane flying high overhead? That was nothing to be concerned about, they told themselves, when in actual fact those planes were busily taking photographs of England in preparation for a future invasion by the Nazis. Within a year, of having promised not to expand into Europe, Hitler sent his armies into Poland and World War II began. Many people were deluded. To be deluded is a serious matter. Well, the trumpet is sounding again in verse 1 as it had back in chapter 5 verse 8 and something is flying over Israel. It's either a vulture or it's an eagle, depending on your translation. The NIV has it as an eagle, I believe. 
If it's a vulture, as the ESV, then it's because of the dead bodies that will soon cover the land. If it's an eagle, then it's the enemy about to swoop down to carry the Israelites off into exile, whichever it is. It speaks of impending judgment. It speaks of a, of a doom that is coming. For this community of God's people, this deluded community of God's people. Now, these things were recorded for our sake, Paul tells us. So, let's look at these five areas. We're not going through verse by verse because that would kill us, but let's just look at the principles, the, the five areas of delusion that the people of Israel had and hopefully learn something from that for our own sake in our own time. Their, their first delusion is in verses 2 and 3, that they, they know God, but of course they don't. They think they know God, but they don't. This is a regular charge that God has against them. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, God said, there is no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 5, verse 4, we read, the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. That's what the Lord said of them, but of course they don't agree. To me, they cry, verse 2, my God, we, Israel, know you. The people who transgressed his covenant, verse 1, who rebelled against his law. They, they have the arrogance, they have the depth of delusion to, to still think that they're in a very close and personal relationship with the Lord their God. It's laughable as we sit here tonight looking at it. But to live in such delusion, even a presumption of belonging to God and but then at the point of greatest need, at the point of greatest crisis, to realize you don't know him. What a disaster. What a disaster. You think of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7 about those who, who lived their religious lives and yet sinful lives. They, they lived under the delusion of knowing him since they thought they had served him. Matthew 7, 21 writes, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There you have this delusion of knowing God. Lord, that's that word, Lord. Jesus says, Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. You see, they assumed that merely referring to the Lord, maybe by claiming the title of Christian, like merely saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, merely saying that, or even doing certain religious activities in the name of the Lord, but they presumed that meant they must know him. They, 
They must belong to him, whilst all the time, at the same time, they're living a life of disregard of that God. They're breaking God's law. It's interesting what Jesus says. He says, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. He doesn't say, get away from me. You didn't have your theology quite right. You know, you weren't right on that doctrine of whatever. It's just simple obedience. Bottom line obedience. You claim to follow me, but you're not. So they claimed a connection with the Lord, and yet like these Israelites of Hosea 8, they're not actually obeying God. They're, they've spurned the good, verse 3, which is presumably the covenant, the, the law that God had given. So what does it mean then to, to truly know the Lord? It means, as we sometimes sing, to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to to submit to him, yes, as your Savior, to, to receive Jesus Christ as the one who suffered and died for your sin, to put all your hope in him as that sacrifice to atone for all your sin, yes, but also to submit to him as your Lord, the one who bought you with his own blood so that now he owns you as his own people and who commands his people, follow me, obey me. Otherwise, it's just Lord, Lord, and we could shout it, we could scream it, we could wave our hands in the air, we could start dancing up the aisles, but it's just Lord, Lord, and that's all it is. It's not truly God's people who belong to him and obey him and live their lives for his glory. Their second delusion is in verse 4, that they think God is in control when really they don't. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. God was Israel's king. But he saw a day when they would ask for a king. And you read in his law the instructions for that, Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That's the important thing there. And so as you trace through the kings of Israel, you see how God through the prophet Samuel chose Saul. Then he chose David. So you have then the divinic line, don't you? You read of that uh, through 1 Samuel and onwards. God, through Ahijah, chose Jeroboam, 1 Kings eleven twenty nine. God, through Elisha, chose Jehu, 2 Kings 9, verse 1, and so on and so forth. That, that principle of the sovereign Lord as Israel's high king, that principle was then worked out in him choosing someone, him choosing someone to lead his people on his behalf. So he was still king, but he set his king on the throne. And we, that translates into the king set on the throne. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But as we've seen already in our series here of Hosea, in 2 Kings 15 as well, Israel had experienced this long series of bloody coups and assassinations where, where basically the people decided for themselves who would be their king. They chose who would be their king, who would be their prince. And yet they still presumed that God had spoken, that his will had been done. So, so their behavior be, betrayed their false belief. Yes, the Lord Almighty is our God, verse 2, but, but we'll decide who's our king. We'll decide who will lead us out against our enemies and who will govern us in sorting out our country's mess. That attitude, that delusion, you you see, continued through right, right to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Pontius Pilate offers the crowd the release of Jesus, he says, who do you want me to release to you? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And who do they choose? Barabbas, the murderer. We don't want God's clear choice to be our king. We want a murderer, an insurrectionist, instead to lead us and sort out our problem. So, so Israel thinks their God has control of their nation, which he does, of course. But by their actions, by their behavior, they are usurping that control. They are demonstrating their delusion. And yes, that principle we can do as well. We can act out that same delusion. We, we say we believe in a sovereign God, and yet when it comes to, to life choices, we, we decide outside of God. We choose, we act like someone described as practical atheists. But we proceed with little or no reference whatsoever to God. And we just press on thinking, well, it feels okay, and therefore, thank you, God, you're in control of my life. And he is in control of your life. But you're not showing that control by your reference or your little reference to him. Scripture advises us, and arguably, Scripture warns us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. That either could be wisdom or a warning. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. The third delusion is in verses 4 to 6, where they think they're worshiping God, but they're not. They think they're worshiping God, but they're not. We would rightly go back to uh, Eden to Adam and Eve to understand what original sin is, how at heart original sin is our disposition, our, our nature inherited from Adam. Our original sin is our inherency to reject God's word for what I choose to do. It's an inherent overruling of God's will for my will. 
Tim Chester, who really has given the structure to tonight's sermon, he very helpfully he suggests, at least anyway, that the the golden calf scene of Exodus 32 is Israel's original sin, because there began the pattern of them making idols, big style, of them using their silver and gold, whatever God had given them out of the goodness of his heart, but, but they take that and they craft for themselves a God, they craft for themselves an image of what they view God to be like. And so at Mount Sinai from Exodus 32, that appears to have set the pattern for the rest of Israel's history. This repeated pattern of overruling the commands of God and forming an image of Him for themselves. That's what Jeroboam had done in the background to this chapter. The king of northern Israel in 1 Kings 12, he had made two golden calves he had set one up in Dan, up north, and Bethel down south of northern Israel. He set them up to discourage people from leaving the northern region to go down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship the Lord there in the temple, as God commanded. So he set up these calves to discourage them, sorry, not to discourage them, to distract them and it worked. It worked. They, they viewed these idols as their God. And you see there in verse 6, this was not God's idea at all. These calves did not represent God, but every idol made is the craftsman's idea. It's our imagination, you see. Even as Christians, we can make in our minds an idol and say, that's God. We have to be very careful about that. We have to keep coming back to Scripture. We have to be very careful with books, especially children's books, and what we present as God in the children's books. Not going to go too far down that road tonight, but we've got to be very careful there. We can put in our minds an impression of what God looks like, and they always think of that image when they pray to God, and got to be very careful there. This was not God's idea. This was the idea of the craftsman who, who has a, an image of God in his mind, and so he, he makes it. And you see how Isaiah brilliantly describes the, the process of making an idol in Isaiah 44, how he carves the wood. He goes out and picks up a piece of wood, brings it home, carves it to make his idol, and covers it in gold, and then whatever's left, he, he makes a fire and cooks his beans. It's ridiculous. It's brilliant the way Isaiah describes it. He bows down before this thing he has made and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Verse 19 of Isaiah 44, the person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. <laughs> I burnt half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. This is the New Living Translation. He trusts something that can't help him at all. 
yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? How foolish to get on like that, isn't it? What a waste of their precious silver and gold, using it to make such useless, such worthless idols. And here Hosea tells them that their golden calf of Samaria, it won't save them from the Assyrians. But the Assyrians will come, it'll be broken up, most likely carried away. This God will be carried away and melted down, I'm sure, and made into something else. But in verse 3, you see, Israel had spurned the good. They had spurned what God gave them, that if they obeyed, they would live by it. Leviticus 18, verse 5. But they've exchanged the glory of God for an idol. They've chosen a lifeless useless idol to worship. And verse 5 tells us God now spurns their idol and his anger burns against them. This is their madness, you see. This is the delusion in their thinking that in worshiping their idols, they, they believe they're worshiping the living God. And I think the prophet Jeremiah describes their sin beautifully, if I may say it like that. Jeremiah 2, verse 12, he says, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, I wonder if when we rehear this third delusion from Hosea 8, I wonder if we could be honest with ourselves tonight and, and ask ourselves, is my walk with the Lord dry? Is it joyless? I'm supposed to be rejoicing at all times, but I'm just dry. And I wonder, does this delusion of God's old covenant people, I wonder, does this challenge us to, to get honest with God and, and ask Him to show us where we have replaced Him, the spring of living water, with some sort of broken cistern. In other words, just plain old religion. Plain old religion. It's Sunday night, it's church night, let's just go to church. But it's dry. Maybe we've slowly replaced him with something else with someone else. But where once we found him to be the reason for our joy, he was the, the reason why we felt content with whatever came up in life. Now, 
Hosea's call to us tonight is to come back to the living God, to the one who loves us and cares for us, the one who provides for us, the one who wants us to know him. Their fourth delusion is in verses 7 to 10, how they think they can solve their own problems, but they can't. And we've touched on this last time, so I won't say too much. It concerns Israel's foreign policy, how they appealed to Assyria, thinking that they, Assyria, would help them. Don't go to God. Don't call on Him. Don't seek Him. We'll, we'll work it out ourselves. So they thought that this unholy alliance would solve all their problems, but not only did it not save them, it made things worse. Assyria took their money and then came for the rest of the money. That's what verse 7 is all about, sowing the wind and then reaping the whirlwind. The consequences are turning out to be far greater than their actions. And Hosea describes their behavior, and I'm not going into detail for the sake of decency from the pulpit. Jeremiah does it more vividly. In verse 9 there, the behavior of Israel is like a wild donkey in heat pursuing this foreign aid rather than returning to the Lord, rather than seeking Him, verse 10. But instead, she goes after foreign help who, in the end, verse 8, will swallow her up. She'll end up, as the ESV says, a useless vessel. Again, the New Living Translation helpful for Old, Old Testament minor prophets, puts it like this, like an old pot that no one wants. If you go down to Daisy Chain in the Team Valley, it's a second-hand store, and you go upstairs and you see the rows of all the old pots that nobody wants. That's what Israel had become like. And again, this shows us how Gomer had been with Hosea. Let's not forget this marital image that lies behind this. She was one who had chased after other men, flaunting herself to them when there was always a good man at home, you see. There was always a good husband waiting for her at home, still loving her still wanting to look after her and provide for her and give her everything she wanted. But she wanted other things from other men. We'll leave it there. We've talked about that before in previous nights. But then finally, the fifth delusion is in verses 11 to 14. And this fifth and final delusion of chapter 8 is that they think that religion will save them, but it won't. They think that religion will save them, but it won't. Do you see how religious Israel is here? How they have multiplied the number of altars to sacrifice sin offerings on. You see, that was one other. That's a, another detail that that we that that demonstrates how they had spurned the good. God had told them that when they get into the promised land, he will show them the place where they are to bring all their offerings to, one altar in Jerusalem. But look what they've done. They've multiplied altars. 
There's one on every corner. All over the place, they have put up these altars in order to put on that altar a sacrifice for sin. So this sin offering designed by God was given by God to restore the relationship that had been broken by sin. God put that in place as a preparation for his people for the coming Christ who would be the final sacrifice for sin. Jesus who would finally and fully restore relationship between God and his people. But here with Israel, instead of minimizing their sin, instead of reducing sin, their many altars in their thinking created more opportunities for them to sin. Look at verse 13, for example. Their meat from their sacrifices. That was meant to be holy. That was to be eaten only by the priests. Yet look what's happening. As for my sacrificial offerings, they, just anybody, the ordinary person, sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. It's, in a sense, the delusion of someone who says, let's keep sinning so we can have great meat feasts after the sacrifice. One commentator writes, their love of eating flesh superseded their love for the Lord. It seems the real reason for having an altar because of sin had completely escaped them. That's what verse 12, I think, is about. How if God even were to give them thousands of copies of his law, even in the New Living Translation, <laughs> they still wouldn't get it. It would seem a, a weird thing to them. What is this that God wants us to do? We're just going to keep doing our own thing here and have our many altars. And yet still think God will save us. God will rescue us from our surrounding nations. God will just forgive us. Even though we're not doing things the way he wants us to do that. Of course, this won't save them. Verses 11 to 14 show that. The sin supposedly atoned for on their multiple altars will be remembered, God said. This is actually the opposite of the new covenant. The promises of the new covenants, God says, I will not remember your sins. I will forgive your sins and you shall know me and I will be your God. And yet here we have the opposite of that. God is not going to do that with these people because of their behavior. Their sin will be remembered. It will be punished. Their palaces, their cities that they are building to trust in, these will be our security. These things will keep us safe. God says, no, they won't. I will destroy them by fire. So friends, let's not trust in ourselves. Let's put our trust in the Lord. Let's not be deluded in any sense of that. Let's not assume or presume that religious activity equates to God's approval. As we've seen tonight, copious religious duties can be sinful acts. 
but it's in the true gospel that we see ourselves as we truly are in what God has given us for our good. This mirror that shows us how we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. Even our very best, our righteous religious acts are as filthy rags compared to God. Our only hope is Jesus. May God remind us of that day by day and bring us with full reliance and full confidence in Him, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, let's close.